Good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, grab those and turn to John chapter 10. That's where we will read today. We will read from verse 11 to verse 21, and I'm using the New American Standard Bible version if you're curious and if you would like to follow along. Verse 11 says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters him. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice and will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Verse 19, and then a division occurred again, notice that word, again, among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Yet others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the blind, eyes of the blinds, can he? Amen. Uh, two Sundays ago, I was in the uh, sprawling metroplex of LaGrange, Georgia. If you've never heard of LaGrange, Georgia, I'm not surprised. The only thing besides the Dollar General that is there, why is that in every small town? But moving on. But the only thing that was in LaGrange, Georgia was, was this gigantic hotel in the middle of nowhere. Now, why is a gigantic hotel in the middle of nowhere? I have no earthly clue. But two weeks ago, my family and I went to this gigantic hotel called the Great Wolf Lodge, if you've ever heard of that. It is basically Disney World all in one building. Inside this hotel is a Dunkin' Donuts, a Ben & Jerry's, a Build-A-Bear, two full-size restaurants, a giant ropes course, a giant arcade, and an indoor gigantic water park. Now this hotel, this building, is my child's dream world. So two Sundays ago, we were in this Great Wolf Lodge for 24 hours in this gigantic water park. Now imagine a, a, a Point Mallard, but a better Point Mallard, all inside one room. So this Great Wolf Lodge had a wave pool, kitty slides, a big huge water slide, lazy river, water playgrounds, free towels, and of course very overpriced food. But in that water park, something very strange happened. I was there with my four-year-old Bryn and my two-year-old Olivia, and we walk into this indoor water park, and my four-year-old is scared of everything. She is terrified of the baby slides. She's terrified of the kiddie pools. But my two-year-old, she walks into this gigantic water park, and she just is off to the races, you know, terrifying us as parents that she would probably drown. So Bryn is hanging out in the kiddie pool, and Olivia is begging as a two-year-old to go down the gigantic swirly slide that's even scary for me to go down. My, my two-year-old, uh, even one time I, I looked away for just a second, and then I looked back and I find my two-year-old climbing up this kiddie playground, you know, steadily climbing up 
20 feet up in the air. And she runs toward this water slide. And there's a line of kids. And she just jet pat, jet, uh, goes past right them and goes headfirst down this water slide. So I'm sitting there running to the end of the water slide to make sure she doesn't drown when she gets to the bottom. But Olivia's favorite part was the lazy river. Now, Olivia, Bryn, my four-year-old, wouldn't touch it, but my two-year-old couldn't get enough of it. But the lazy river was deceiving because the lazy river was not for lazy people, especially for parents with two-year-olds. Now, this lazy river was small. It may have been 10 feet across and maybe 100 yards in length, and there were at least 100 kids in that one single lazy river. But all of these big kids had, you know, the giant tubes, these giant inflatable rafts. So as a parent, as I am floating around the lazy river, I am terrified that one of these inflatable rafts is going to drown my two-year-old underneath it. But in the midst of all of this danger, Olivia is cool as ice. In the midst of all of this danger, she has no clue what is going on, and she's just laying back. The picture I have as we go around and around and around this lazy river probably 25 times is Olivia is in her life preserver laying down like this, right, without a care in the world, in the midst of all of this danger, with her father holding her hand the entire time. Olivia, my two-year-old, in the midst of the danger, was calm. But as I think about it two weeks later, I wonder why Olivia was cool as ice, and Bryn was terrified. It had to be more than personality or temperament. It had to be more than ignorance to danger. It had to be more that she was just, than she was just a two-year-old. But as I think about Olivia going around and around that lazy river, just laying back in the midst of all of this danger and all of the obstacles that could easily hurt her, the reason I believe that she was calm is because she knew her father was right there with her. As he held her hand going around and around this lazy river, she had no thought to danger because I was sitting right there. Olivia was confident in her parents. She was confident in our character to protect her, whereas Bryn, my four-year-old, only focused on the danger of the circumstances around her. That is the picture of the Christian life. Oftentimes we are like Bryn, my four-year-old. That in the midst of uncertainty, we only look at the danger that surrounds us. We stress over the unknown. We try to control circumstances beyond our reach. But biblically speaking, we are called to be like Olivia. That in the midst of trials, in the midst of danger, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of stress or anxiety, we are meant to lay back and trust the sovereignty and the love of God. What does the scripture say? Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says this, says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet relaxing in the unknown, trusting God in the midst of danger is much easier said than done. But when we stress out, when we wander from the flock of God, that when we try to control every circumstance that is in our life, what are we forgetting in the midst of all of this uncertainty? We're forgetting the character and sovereignty and the love of God. 
Today, I want to remind you of our Good Shepherd, of His character that He gives towards the sheep that He so dearly loves. Today, I want to remind you or unpack the three actions that the Good Shepherd gives towards His sheep, and His sheep are all those who believe in Him. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 10. That is where we will be, and we will see the three actions of the Good Shepherd. Now, as you turn to John chapter 10, I quickly realize that it's been 167 hours since we unpacked John chapter 10. And in the last 167 hours, we've probably binged to watch Netflix, we've worked, we've slept. And if we have a hard time remembering what we had for breakfast, right, amen, then we're going to have a hard time remembering what we talked about 167 hours ago. The chronological context of the Gospel of John, we really discussed last week. So what I wanted to do this week is to discuss or to remember the theological context of John chapter 10. What is the singular purpose of the Gospel of John? Why was this Gospel written? If you do not have this verse highlighted, circled, uh, pointed arrows in it, I would do so. This is John chapter 20, verse 31. What is the singular purpose of the Gospel of John? John chapter 20, verse 31 says this, But these things have been written, so that for the purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Every word. Every story, every verse, every detail of the Gospel of John points to this singular purpose. The Gospel of John was written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, meaning Messiah, that He is the Son of God, meaning that He is God Himself and Yahweh, and that believing we may have life in His name. And if you think about the Gospel of John, we we are uh, less than halfway through. I've been in the Gospel of John for almost a year. So, there you go. I'm going to be here a while. But if you think about the Gospel of John to this point, every story, every verse points to this very purpose. Every detail affirms that He's the Messiah, the Christ, and that believing you may have life in His name. But the, the Gospel of John is not a preacher's friend. Because the Gospel of John is just this giant broken record that says the same thing over and over and over and over again. If you If you've been here for any length of time, and you wonder why my sermons sound similar, the reason is just because the passages themselves are very similar. John is putting into our minds, drilling into our heads, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Jesus affirms that He is Yahweh in John chapter 6. And what does He say? That He is the bread of life. Meaning that He is the provider of life. That He is the light of the world. Meaning what? That He is Yahweh. That He is the solution to sin. And that He, we saw last week, that He is the door. What does that mean? That He is the only path. The door. The only gateway to abundant life and eternal life, no matter what the world tells you. But Jesus has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. Let me say something, friends. Let us not let the thief convince us that the abundant life is a life that is of wealth and material possessions. The abundant life that Christ provides is not a life of financial security or job satisfaction or wealth or happiness or a life without trial or tragedy. 
But the abundant life that Christ provides is pictured in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. The abundant life that Christ provides is a life that knows God. A life that returns to the way we were originally designed to walk in perfect fellowship with Him, to know God, to hear His voice, and to follow Him to green pastures. If I could put it in a nutshell, the abundant life that Christ promises in John chapter 10, verse 10, the abundant life is to know God. And that is where we pick up today in John chapter 10 with verse 11. So on the heels of this of this phrase, I am the door and the abundant life, we enter into verse 11, which is our passage today. But before we really unpack the three actions of the Good Shepherd, what I want to do is I want, to just, I want you to just notice, just look at the first five words in verse 11. I'm going to spend an extensive amount of time on these five words. Verse 11 says this, I am the Good Shepherd. Now, these five words are perhaps more important or just as important as any other truth in the New Testament because in these five words, he is describing many, many things. But I want you to notice the two adjectives that describe him as a shepherd. The first adjective is the, T-H-E. We oftentimes just kind of briefly skip that. But in the original language, the word shepherd has the article in front of it that Jesus is the shepherd, not a shepherd, but he is the shepherd. It is exclusive that there is no one else, that he is the shepherd of the flock of God. But then notice the second adjective, Jesus is the good shepherd. But the wrong word is used for good here. The more common word for good is the Greek word agathos, but the word here is the Greek word kalos. The word agathos is more attributive, oh, that was a good piece of chocolate. But the word kalos is more intrinsic, that he is a good person. But the word kalos, it doesn't just mean good, but it means excellent. It means exemplary, that Jesus is the excellent shepherd. Now, some of you may be asking me, okay, why is that important? Why is it important that Jesus claims to be the excellent shepherd? For two reasons. Reason number one is Jesus claiming to be the good shepherd, number one, reveals our relationship to him. This metaphor of Jesus as our shepherd and we are the sheep is echoed in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 5, Hebrews chapter 13, and Matthew chapter 26. And since we are the sheep and he is our shepherd, then what? Jesus is our leader, he is our protector, he is our comforter, he is our guide, he is our person that pulls us back when we wander from the flock, he is our north star in the midst of trials. Jesus is the excellent shepherd, and if we are his sheep, then when we wander from the flock of God, then what do we know? That Jesus is going to love and comfort us and care for us. But what do we know in Matthew chapter 18, verse 12, is that the good shepherd will leave the 99 to find the one. If you're sitting here today and you're wandering from the flock of God, 
If you're starting to question his character, you're starting to doubt his existence, you're starting to doubt the gospel which you have heard, then the good shepherd is leaving the 99 and he will find you and he will yearn you to come back and follow him. The importance of Jesus being the good shepherd, number one, reveals our relationship to him, that he is our leader. But number two, it reinforces that he is the Messiah. It reinforces that he is the Messiah. Jesus claiming that he is the excellent shepherd should have sent off some light bulbs in the Jewish mind that he is talking to here in John chapter 10. But clearly they don't put the puzzle pieces together very well. Amen. They're always confused at who this Jesus guy is, but it could not be more plain. Right? But Jesus being the good shepherd, him, him claiming to be this, reinforces that he is the Messiah. It, it really fulfills three different prophecies of the Old Testament. Prophecy number one is found in Ezekiel 34, which fulfills the provision of the shepherd. Prophecy number two prophesies the protection of the shepherd, which is found in Micah 5.4. Prophecy number three prophesies the plan of the shepherd, which is Zechariah 13. I'm going to unpack those here right now. Prophecy number one predicts the provision of the shepherd. This is in Ezekiel 34, verse 23. It says this, then I will set forth over them one shepherd, my servant, a descendant of David, and he will feed the sheep, and he will feed them himself, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant, the descendant of David, will be the prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel 34, which Jesus claims to be in John chapter 10, predicts the provision of the shepherd. What does the shepherd feed the flock? What does it say? Himself. I imagine those who are reading the prophecy of Ezekiel were probably a little bit confused. Because the shepherd feeds himself to the sheep. What is it, what is it talking about? That Jesus Christ, who is the shepherd, provides us what? His death as our redemption, as a propitiation for our sin, and as the pathway to salvation. The prophecy number two is found in Micah chapter 5. Verse 2, which fulfills the protection of the shepherd. This is in Micah 5, 2. You're going to recognize verse 2, but I'm going to skip down also to verse 4. But as for you, Bethlehem, you'll recognize this verse. Too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So Micah 5, 2 predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But then notice the shepherd, he who is the Messiah, born in Bethlehem, which Jesus was, will then fulfill as the shepherd of verse 4. And he, this Messiah, will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at the time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Here in Micah chapter 5, it predicts the birth of the Messiah in the town of Bethlehem, but it predicts that this Messiah will be the shepherd and that those, his sheep, will remain in him. It prophesies the protection of the sheep, that those who believe in Jesus Christ cannot be lost permanently, cannot lose their salvation and the placement that they have inside the family and flock of God. And then Zechariah 13 prophesies the plan for the good shepherd, Zechariah 13, verse 7 says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Listen to this one. Awake, 
oh sword, against my shepherd, which Jesus is claiming to be, and against the man my associate declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What does Zechariah 13 predict? It predicts the death of Jesus Christ, that God the Father will strike the shepherd. Why did Jesus Christ die to be the payment for our sin? And here, 400 years before Jesus was even born, it predicts his death. But then it also predicts something else right beside it. It says this, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. What is that predicting? If you know the story in John chapter 19, what happens? One sheep, one sheep denies God, Jesus three times. One sheep runs out of the garden of Gethsemane without clothing. Yes, that's in there. And all run and hide except for the gospel of John. So this is what I'm saying. When Jesus says those five words, I am the good shepherd, he is proclaiming the relationship that we have to him, that we are a sheep, that he is our leader, that he is our protector, that he is our guide in the midst of all of the tragedies and trials and triumphs of life. He reveals our relationship, but he also reveals that he is the Messiah because of the three prophecies in the Old Testament. And we're only on the first half of verse 11, so we'll be here a while. But then notice the second half of verse 11. Notice the three actions the good shepherd has towards us, his sheep. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd, the excellent shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What are the three actions the good shepherd has towards his sheep? Action number one is the good shepherd dies for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd dies for the sheep. So this metaphor kind of continues here. And, and, I, and so Jesus is the good shepherd, and then we are the sheep. But then from a humanistic perspective, what am I thinking when it says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. To me, it's just a sheep. Are sheep really worth dying for that's that's the question that i have when i enter this text but clearly the shepherd here is considers us and metaphorically as sheep but he considers us worthy enough to die for but i'm thinking from a humanistic perspective that it's just sheep laurel and i uh got a dog when we first got married that seems to be kind of the rite of passage when you first get married, before you have kids, you have to have a dog, right? I mean, that's kind of the way it works, okay? I'm getting some nods in the room. Okay, so I, we got a dog named Lucy, and when I moved to seminary, I uh, kind of uh, ponder off on uh, Dustin and Karen, my father-in-law. So there you go. Sorry, Dustin and Karen, you inherited a dog. Okay, but when we got, first got married, we got a dog named Lucy, and looking back, you know, would I die for a dog? Would I die for an animal? Now some of you go, okay, but would I die? Would I run out in the middle of 565 to rescue my dog? Well, probably not. <laughs> don't, don't judge me for that, okay. But I probably would not run out in the middle of a busy road to save my dog's life, much less a sheep. But Jesus here, being the good shepherd, says he laid down his life for something that is seemingly in our culture, something that can be easily passed over and left to die. 
Jesus died for the sheep. His death for the sheep is prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 6. It says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid upon him the sins of us all. That Jesus' death for the sheep is prophesied in Isaiah 53. It is foreshadowed in John chapter 10 and is fulfilled in John chapter 19. But what's the question? You know, when I, when I look at this text, when I look at verse 11, it says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then what's the question? Why? And why would the good shepherd die for us who are his sheep or those who believe in him? This is found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. By this, the love of God was revealed to us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Jesus, the good shepherd, died for the sheep. Why? To pay for our sin and to gift us with eternal life and abundant life here on earth. What manner of love is this? The good shepherd dies for his sheep, but then notice the second action he has in verses 12 through 13. He who is the hired hand and not the shepherd, he who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. The good shepherd dies for the sheep and then protects the sheep from danger. Verse 12, a hired hand runs when danger comes, but the good shepherd stays and protects the sheep, even offering his own life in protection for them. But when we enter into verse 12 and 13, when I was kind of unpacking this verse, I kind of had, we, had, we have to make an exegetical decision. This week in staff meeting, I had a staff person ask me, if, if the metaphor in verses 1 through 6 is continuing in verses 12 through 13. Now, initially, I said no, that they, they seem to be two separate metaphors, but I think they are linked. As we saw last week, the thief is Satan. The thieves are false teachers who hop in another way. And the hired hand here in verse 12 and 13 is a false leader. And what does a false leader do to the sheep? He runs when danger comes. But the good shepherd stays and protects the sheep and even dies for him to, pres- to give them eternal life. Jesus sees us as more than just sinful people or sinful knucklehead sheep. But Jesus peers into the darkness of the world and calls me and calls you who are nothing but balls of dust. He calls you loved Valued, worthy to die for, and worthy to protect. What manner of love is this? The good shepherd dies for the sheep, he protects the sheep, but then the shepherd pursues the heart of the sheep. Notice verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of his fold. What is he talking about? Gentiles who believe in Christ right then and there. In John 10, he's only talking to the Jewish nation. But other sheep that are outside the fold that will believe 
I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The excellent, the excellent shepherd dies for the sheep, protects the sheep, and knows the sheep. The word there for know is the Greek word gnosko. That is an intimate knowledge. It'd be the way that you know your family, your, your wife or your children, somebody that you have a close relationship with, that Jesus Christ knows us, gnosko. It's not the Greek word oida. Oida is a factual knowledge. Here, Jesus says, I know intimately my sheep. But I want to kind of go down a little bit deeper into the original language. I want you to notice verse 14 and 15. I want you to notice the two words that link these two phrases together, these two verses together. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The way you kind of determine the relationship between clauses and phrases and verses is by looking for the conjunction that binds the two together. If you notice the two words, even as... The Greek word there is kathos. It means just as. And I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. In a similar way that Jesus knows the Father, Jesus knows us. What does that mean? That Jesus has known us since before we were created. What does it say in the scripture? Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in, your book were, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Jesus knows us before our own existence. And number two, Jesus knows us. Gnosko. He knows us intimately. He knows us beyond what we show other people. He knows the real you. The one that you hide behind the masks and the walls. Jesus knows us intimately. He knows our struggles. He knows our sin. He knows our temptation. He knows our insecurities. He knows our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams and our fears and our brokenness. And he knows our sin. And still, despite knowing all of our mistakes, he peers into the darkness of this world and the sin that has crippled us. And he calls us worthy to save. I've been preaching the word of God for I guess almost 20 years, believe it or not. That, that's weird to me. But I still, I don't know if I truly understand the love and grace of God. Because God knows all of my mistakes. He knows all of my sin. He knows all of the ways that I will err from Him. As a sheep, He knows all the times that I have wandered far from the flock. But He still, at the beginning of time, sees me as worthy to die for. I don't know if I understand that. What marvelous grace that we have, that He's freely bestowed on all those who believe. 
Jesus knows us intimately and can empathize with us. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 3? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. Our shepherd knows us, protects us, dies for us, but he knows you. Can I, can I just kind of get up all in your business and step on your toes for just a second? We, we like to hide our sin in the darkness. We like to put kind of secrets away in our life, thinking that no one really knows stuff that just no one else knows about us in our entire life. But Jesus knows even that, and he paid for that sin. And as Lisa Peck would say, all of the sins that we have and that we tuck away in the closets and darkness of our life, the ones that we don't like to tell anybody about, what Lisa Peck would say is to bring it into the light, just to confess your sins to the Lord. Because Jesus already knows. He knows your sin. He knows your fear. He knows all of your doubt. He knows all of your insecurity. He knows you, the real you, the real you that no one else sees. He knows you, and despite your mistakes and your constant wandering from the flock of God, he still says that he loves you and he has given forgiveness for your sin. Our shepherd displays his great love towards us who are believers in him by dying for us on the cross, by protecting us, and by knowing us intimately. And notice how the crowds react. Notice how the Jewish nation reacts in verse 19. After 20,000 miracles, because there are so many things that are not written in the Gospel of John, as is said in verse 30 of chapter 20, there are many things that are not recorded after time and time again of, uh, of proving himself to be the Messiah, the Christ, to be God himself. This is how they respond in verse 19. After two and a half years of ministry, a division occurred among them again, notice that the Jews, because of these words, verse 20, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? In verse 21, others were saying, these are not the sayings of the one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? How do the crowds react to the discourse in John chapter 10 verses 1 through 18? If we could put it in a nutshell, the crowds don't know what to do with him. They have no idea what to do with this Jesus guy. Some think he's demon-possessed and completely insane. Some think that he can't be demon-possessed because how could he be that way? Because he opened the eyes of the blind. They simply just don't know what to do with him. But what's missing here? What's missing from time and time again? Every time they hear the gospel in the gospel of John, which has been shared many, many times, what is always missing? It is faith. What are they, what are they trying to do, friends? The Jewish nation is trying to rationalize, to reason this Jesus guy who is in front of them. They're trying to put all of the facts and figures, all the puzzle pieces together. And then and only then, when they have the completed picture of God's plan, will they believe in him. They are crippled by reason and logic and forego faith because of it. 
The crowd is crippled by logic which extinguishes faith. And nothing has changed. 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. Something far more deadly than COVID-19 sweeps across our nation today. Our secular culture is like the Jewish nation here in John chapter 10. We today try to rationalize everything before we believe anything. We try to rationalize everything before we believe anything. We try to rationalize God, but we cannot rationalize God. How could finite beings explain the infinite? It makes no sense. If you're sitting here today and you're trying to figure out if you want to believe in this Jesus guy and you have to have the complete picture before you believe, you're going to be waiting the rest of your life. Because the, the infinite cannot fit within our finite framework. That is the problem in our culture. is that we won't believe anything before we have all of the facts and figures put together. But Christianity doesn't really make sense logically. It's super logical, as my friend Dr. Harvey Ching would say. I believe trying to rationalize God is how the thief permeates our culture today and blinds us to the truth. This week in staff meeting, which is on Tuesday mornings, this week in staff meeting, we were kind of talking about why, you know, why do we not have demon possessions, you know, people demon possessed here in America? And I had a couple of explanations, but that weren't biblical necessarily at the time. But then as I kind of thought about that question, I thought about, you know, missionary testimonies. Have you ever heard a missionary's testimony before? Okay. How many of you have ever heard a missionary that talked about a demon possession on the field? I certainly have, many, many times. And, and somebody in staff meeting kind of said, you know, why do we hear about demon possessions in the jungles of Africa, but we do not see it here in America? I believe it is because, partly because of the thief, the enemy. The enemy in the jungles discredits God by the use of the supernatural. And in America, the thief, which is described in verse 10, in America, the thief discredits God with the use of reason. Faith in our culture makes no sense. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. The thief is trying to convince us that before we have faith in Jesus Christ, that we have to have it all together and believe every little thing. But we will never fully understand God. Even even as a sheep, Even as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to encounter trials and difficulties one day, and you're going to try to understand God's perfect picture for your life and how all of this fits in within its framework. If you try to, if you wait, if you're waiting to understand everything in life, then you're foregoing faith and you're going to be waiting a long time (laughs) because some things in life just don't make sense. If someone comes up to you today at lunch at Jason's Deli or Wendy's or wherever you eat or Taco Bell, which I'll probably go to after church today. If someone comes up to you in Jason's Deli and asks you what your preacher talked about, then you would answer this way. He talked about Jesus, but please don't stop there. That Jesus is the excellent shepherd who died for us, protects us, and who knows us intimately. Our shepherd died for us. He is the payment for our sin. 
We here at Calvary Bible Church believe in penal substitutionary atonement, which means that Christ died for our, the penalty of our sin as our substitute. We believe that our shepherd will protect us. But there's this false uh, idea in the Christian world and amongst Christians today that we clearly, Jesus as our shepherd will protect us. But we have this false idea that God will protect us from pain and from trials and from tribulations, but nothing can be further from the truth. Actually, the opposite is true. That if we are true followers of God, that we will encounter trials and pain. But God, Jesus Christ's protection is promised in our salvation. That our salvation is permanent. That we cannot lose it. John chapter 10 verse 29. That our victory over temptation can be won. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. And our pain in the present works for our good. In Romans chapter 8 verse 20, 28. That all things work together for the good to those who love God. To those called according to his purpose. Let's just ask the question then. So what? You know, how do, how do we take John chapter 10 and kind of apply it to our life in the 21st century America? And that it, think about it. If, if the good shepherd died, protects, and knows us intimately, then what should we do? We should be Olivia, my two-year-old that is relaxing in the lazy river in the midst of all of this danger. She relaxes. My encouragement to you is to be Olivia, okay, to, to take comfort in our shepherd. That in the midst of anything that you face in the future, that you know that his love is never, will never be quenched. His reach is never beyond your circumstance. And his guidance for you is always sure. Take comfort in Christ because he is the good shepherd. There is no other great leader. He is the good shepherd who died for us, loves us, redeems us, sacrifices for us, and provides for us. He is the good shepherd who protects us. He gives us victory over sin, works out all things for our good, seals our salvation. He is the good shepherd who knows us, who knows our sin, our sadness, our insecurities, our failure, and our shame. He knows you, the real you. And still, despite it, he decided to come and enter flesh to die for our sin and to call a sinful ball of dust loved and worthy to be saved. And a Savior that does all that deserves our trust. Friends, take comfort in our shepherd. This week, no matter what you face, remember his character. Remember that he is good and that he loves and takes care of us. Here in just a minute, I will call my the prayer partners forward. But very quickly, if you, if if this sermon was like Chinese to you and you just didn't make any sense, then perhaps you're not a sheep of God. Perhaps you have never believed in His name. There is a difference between knowing the truth and believing the truth. There are a lot of people that sit in churches today that can tell the truth of the gospel but have never believed it. If you are one of those, if you could spout off the gospel that Jesus Christ has come and he died for my sins and he was buried and, was, and he rose again and if I believe in him that I will be saved. That's the gospel in a nutshell. But being able to repeat that truth does not save you. It is faith. 
That saves you. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He gives you the opportunity today, right where you are, to trust in Him. If you have never surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior of your life, then do so today. I can think of no better time than right now. If you would like to talk to somebody about that, we will have two people forward at the end of the service. Bow with me in a word of prayer and then we will close. Heavenly Father, uh, what, a, what a magnificent truth in John 10 that you are the excellent, the excellent shepherd who leads us, comforts us, who has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies and who, who loves and cares for the sheep. And Lord, I pray that we would take comfort in your character, that we would not be like sheep who wander from the flock of God and from their shepherd Lord, that we would not set our eyes on other things and other priorities in our life that dangle in front of us, but Lord, that we would put you in front of our lives and we would follow you as our guide. But Lord, I pray that if we are wandering from the flock of God, that if we are beginning to doubt and not understand the gospel, if we are beginning to let sin have hold in our life, Lord, that I pray that we would turn back and we would look for the shepherd that is chasing after our hearts. And Lord, I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, for those that may know the truth but do not believe the truth, I pray that they would believe in you today. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the privilege it is to open your word and just proclaim it as it is. I thank you for the privilege that I have to be able to preach through a gospel of, of, of this length Step by step, week after week, without apology. <laughs> Lord, I just pray that your word would not return void, that the Spirit of God would take your word and shape and to change our lives. Let us be lights in this world. Let us take the truth of your scripture and shine it to the non-believers in our life. Lord, protect us as we go from here. Protect those that are online that are watching here today. Thank you for them. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.